What can disruptive forms of worship teach us? Adam Hurlson is a homiletic scholar. In this episode, we talk about his book, The Holy No, Worship as a Subversive Act. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. So why did this book need to be written? The book is written for a couple of different reasons. The first is it's designed to be a subsidy to your introductory worship textbook in seminary settings. In teaching worship, in leading worship, in my own time as a student and as a teacher, uh, I would teach from these introductory textbooks, and I kept saying, oh, but there's more, that this dominant account of what counts as worship and the worship practices is not the whole story. There are all of these very interesting ways in which communities have have worshiped to um, in different ways, in idiosyncratic ways, and towards different ends than we're typically used to. So what is the dominant model? Well, I, what's I think, missing from it? I, I think the the dominant model is um, is the model that we see that's designed to help preserve and conserve the institutions and the traditions of which we're a part. And there's real value in that. And the book isn't designed to uh, erase that, but to also call the church to its fundamental mission to change. Because at the heart of the book is the assumption that worship is designed to change the world and that stasis is ultimately not the job of the church. That the church is a moving provisional and relational environment that requires worship as an engine to drive it forward. And if that's the case, then we need to look at the ways in which worship has changed the church and changed the world around it. And if that's the sort of fundamental assumption at the center of the book, the question was, well, how has the church changed and how and what practices and unique ways has the church leveraged typical parts of the worship practice, preaching, arts, music, festival, um, sacraments, in what ways have these um, traditional practices been used towards new ends, towards leveraging change that forces the church to become more the church, to live more fully into its identity and into its mission? And so uh, in some ways, the, the book is one part uh, theory and theology, but it's also another part history. It's an opportunity for me to sort of dig back into these worship practices that don't show up in our introductory textbooks, and they sh- show up in oblique ways within history. And then we pull them up and say, wow, there was a community doing this thing at one time. So, for instance... Just going to ask for an yeah, example. Yeah, so, so for instance, <laughs> um, the historical record is is tricky, but in the Middle Ages, we find the Bishop of Paris, I think it is, sending letters to another higher up in the Catholic Magisterium. And he's complaining that local churches are singing the Magnificat too much. And he wants to put a policy in place that you cannot sing the Magnificat more than six times in any worship service. Now, this is intriguing to me as a scholar and as a, and as a worshiper because it seems to suggest that there is a community somewhere that is taking this song of inversion of power, of um, uh, this song of deep faith, and 
that talks about the ways in which the powerful will be laid low and those who are weak are going to be made mighty. From the mouth of Mary. From the mouth of Mary and in a way that the church cannot look at the practice and say, you're not allowed to sing that because it's codified right there and it's central authority. And so you have a community somewhere in France singing the song over and over and over. And so they've taken a very traditional practice. The liturgy has the Magnificat in it, but they've been able to subvert the tradition and the domination that's happening within their particular environment in this oblique and strange and wonderful way, which is people can't tell them not to sing the song and so they just sing it over and over again. And so we see instances like that in history over and over and over again in various different places. And so the book is trying to make the argument that subversion has been a central part of Christian worship from the very beginning. And that if we look closely at worshiping communities, we will find within their practice subversive ways of taking these very traditional practices and changing their environment for the better. Um was there evidence that that particular community had changed because of their redundant singing of that song? Well, that's hard. That's hard to yeah. say, right? Like the it's lost to history, but I think we do see it in other places. Um, I think we see sub, um, subversion show up in in festivals all regularly. There there are ways in which um, the festival worship of the Caribbean is both a um, both an authentic act of faith and also a way to press back against uh, the plantation of of the Caribbean and the American South. Can you describe festival worship of the Caribbean? So, like Carnival, um, if you've been in Trinidad and Tobago during a Carnival, it is a wild and raucous festival. There's um, very little clothing and lots of dancing and music that comes... Um, uh, that comes in the form of calypso, for instance. Um, but you see this in South America. You see this in different parts of Western Europe where particular religious festivals leave the church, enter into public places, and in those public places enact narratives of inversion, just like Mary's Magnificat, enact um, new ideas of how the, the eschaton is going to break in to our everyday life. And they begin to do this in ways that are crude and base, but assumed in these ideas is that God is material. If we take seriously the incarnation and the idea that that the divine has been um, not just clothed in humanity, but is humanity, yeah. that, that the flesh is... Um, is not antithetical to the divine, and neither is time antithetical to the divine, but that the divine has um, been inextricably intertwined with flesh and time. Well, then why can't we celebrate the base, the crude, the dirt of our lives and and venerate it as uh, faithful, as faith? And and so, my another example that I love is. Um, in Barcelona, in the sort of Catalonian region of Spain, nativity sets are pretty typical, right? You have like baby Jesus living in uh, in a little manger, and uh, Mary is like her face is shining, and then there's some cows and shepherds and magi, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, but in Catalan, uh, in they have another little figure that they place hidden in the nativity, and it's called the Kaganer. And what the Kaganer is is a you know a peasant wearing this red cap, defecating on the ground. That gets hidden in yeah, a- <laughs> and so and so in every yeah, and that's amazing. In every little nativity in this area, it's fun for children to go and find the Kaganer, right? Yeah. But what you find is that it's present. So this became a major problem in Barcelona because Barcelona then decided to pass all of these city ordinances that you can't like piss in the street and you can't have parties that are too loud. And then they had to put their nativity set together for the Advent season. And they had a real question, which is, can we put the Kaganer in this public place defecating on the ground? He breaks all the when rules. When he's breaking the rules. And so they didn't. And the city went nuts and said, you have to go and put him. And so they hid him in the bushes. Um, but it's an indication that this this figure has shown up in the story. Never named never talked about is no place in scripture but has a place within their nativity story now and so the central cultural retelling in some way yeah exactly right so why what's going on here and the reading that i give to it is that our nativities around the world are missing a lot and what they're missing is bodies we don't see bloody rags. We don't see amniotic fluid. We don't see um, all of the things that come with birth. Yeah. It's uh, really sterilized. It's, it's a sterilized, yeah. deodorized moment. We don't see the um, the excrement of the animals. We don't see all of the things that would have been present in that moment. That carry with them like danger and life and death. And, but, and carry with them time, right? Mm-hmm. Like pregnant women give birth more or less on the same schedule. It's a remarkable thing. We defecate more or less on a regular schedule, right? Like we have time laid in our bodies and our nativity scenes don't have time represented in any way. Yeah. And so suddenly now we've inserted or this culture has inserted this little figure that represents what peasants know. Just they can they peasants have been having you know, babies in mangers for a very long time. Um, But they also know that it's missing a birthing stool and it's missing blood and it's missing excrement and it's missing all of the things that would have been present. And I think that that's a theological argument, ultimately. Uh, It's not just an attempt to add realism to the scene. It's an attempt to say that the incarnation means that a real body showed up. And that body does things like defecate. And we can be ashamed of that um, if if we like. But by being ashamed of that, we're less likely to fully embrace the real consequence of the incarnation. And that's been exciting to me. And I think this is, this is really apparent in rabbinic Judaism. You find uh, less, uh, less shame around bodies, mm-hmm. especially as we, as they, pertain to liturgical functions. So Mm. early rabbinic Judaism has has all of these prayers for when you defecate. Mm -hmm. And and it's things like, 
God who is seated on the throne, which is awesome way to sort of like start <laughs> yes. your your prayer of defecation. But yeah. it's um, and then says, "You have made me full of holes, and if if these holes were to be shut up, I would not live. So I thank you for them." Yeah. Um, similarly, in in various places in the Talmud, there are, are admonitions for rabbis to have sex with their partners on the Sabbath. And so there are times in histories in where you would put a sign on your door basically saying that I'm having sex with my partner. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that has a sort of more modest view of how body and spirit work. And and I think the Kaganer is interesting in part because it was a sort of very Jewish region for a long time before the Jews were kicked out in 1492. But more than that, I think it's also trying to insert back bodies into our ideas of worship because um, because peasants value bodies mm-hmm. and the work that they do. Another, all right, I got stories. I got, I, I tell stories. I got lots of stories. <laughs> well, I'm thinking as you're talking that these disruptors yeah. can help reorient us. Well, or- so, so for instance, yeah. So, the book isn't saying you need to put Kaganers in your right. nativity scenes, but it is saying, have you thought intentionally about your practice around the incarnations, the incarnation, and all of the small ways in which we celebrate that or not? Yeah. So, for instance, the Kaganer inspires me to think about our Christmas pageants. Mm-hmm. In what way have our Christmas pageants been in service of preciousness and cuteness? And we've lost sight that something powerful is being enacted in front of us. Mm-hmm. We've lost sight that these young people enacting it in particular might give us special insight into this story. Uh, that what we're seeing um, can be leverage towards a different direction than cute. But it might be actually powerful. It might actually um, prevent us from, you know, picking up our phones and like taking pictures because, oh, isn't it precious to see? I got to get this the, on Facebook. Yeah, like yeah. the the three-year-old wearing a lamb's costume. Yeah. How and do you so, think most yeah. people experience the Christmas pageant? I think, I, I mean... The typical Christmas pageant. Yeah, I, I think if you're working it, it is tiring and totally overwhelming. I think if you're watching it, you are, um, you think this is really cute. What about? I'm glad we do this tradition. What if you're a child in it? Well, that's the question. Who are they doing it for? And how are we preparing them to enact this? I mean, these are all questions that I'm pulling from this strange other practice in another place. But it's it's pushing me back to think about my practices around nativities and how we depict them. Um, and what does it mean for us to sort of place people in these traditional roles? And um, and how are we preventing these young people from actually leading us to understand a story by forcing them to be cute? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want my worship to be cute. And I don't want to force young people, if I'm going to ask them to be leaders, to be um, assessed by cuteness. Mm-hmm. To get dialed up and paraded, right? Yeah. I, I, I think um, I would rather the Christmas pageant 
begin to revert back to those nativity plays that that sort of littered Christian history um, almost from the very beginning, where adults, kids, all of them are forced to live this thing out again. Hmm. And this is where, like, theater becomes a really important part. And there's a portion of the book that talks about, like, that festival is at its heart absurd theater. Hmm. But it's that absurdity that ultimately gives us some special insight into the world. It's it's the absurdity that allows us to live into Paul's admonition, but that which the world thinks is foolish is actually really wise. Hmm. And that which the world thinks is wise is actually not that wise. It's actually pretty foolish. And so festival gives us an opportunity to invert that stuff, to, to actually think about how might we become foolish for the sake of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And costumes do that. Costumes yeah. are great. They for introduce that. well. They can introduce some absurdity or right. Just like the Kaganer, right? The Kaganer is this absurd figure that we mm-hmm. put in there, mm-hmm. like doesn't fit until you sort of cock your head and you see. Oh, of course it fits. Right. He's right where he needs to be. Yeah, this is right <laughs> where he needs to be. He's he's doing what peasants have done for the last you know ten thousand years. Yeah. It's just. Pooping on the ground where everybody else does. And so I, I look at that and I think, oh, yeah, that figure is designed to look at this story differently, to find a different vantage, to find a different person to do it. I mean, originally, this is what the donkey did in hmm. Christian history, because there is no reference to the donkey in uh, in the nativity story. Right. But every crash every nativity story oh, has mary like yeah, hanging yeah. out on a donkey well this is really this happens actually very early in christian history it's within the first couple hundred years that the traditions like latches onto the donkey mm-hmm. and it does so in a very funny way it's the donkey is designed um to press against the cultural understandings of both christianity and the donkey itself so the donkey is a uh in Roman culture was a stubborn, idiotic creature. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the early Christian church finds it hilarious that this donkey can evade the war horses of Herod as they search for the newborn Christ, hmm. right? It's not like they're, the, the Holy Family is fleeing to Egypt and there's not like a million roads to get to Egypt. It's fairly easy to find someone on these roads. Yeah. And Somehow the donkey can evade the imperial army, mm-hmm. which is funny to them, right? Um, and so the donkey gets venerated fairly early, sure. so much so that in the in the medieval church there are all these worship festivals um, around the donkey. The festival mm. of the ass shows up, and they parade a donkey. That's really what it's called, it's, the festival, festival of the, of the ass. ass. Yeah, and it's really called that. And they parade a donkey in, and they tie the donkey to the pulpit. And the donkey has this privileged place sitting there, literally sitting there in the in in the church. And at various different times, and this is my favorite part, the call and response of the liturgy requires the congregation to like neigh and bray <laughs> like a donkey. <laughs> and I think about that and I think that's totally absurd yeah. and amazing. Yeah. And and I would love to see that in a church. Yeah. I would love to see something that takes seriously the ironic, comedic, absurd thing and venerates it and yeah. says, uh, you want to know who, what we're like? Yeah. We're like a bunch of donkeys. Yeah. Which flips upside down hierarchy right. and expectation 
right. and can have a po- whiff of the kingdom. Which is the yeah. point of subversion, right? Yeah. The Subversion is the tactic of the weak to try and change the dominant culture that's trying to keep the weak disenfranchised. Yeah. So do you think do you think folks in North American church culture experience worship as subversive? Or is this is this something that you're you see elsewhere and you would like to see? I I think it happens everywhere. Um I mean the argument of the book is that that subversion has been a part of the church's worship from the very beginning. And and it shows up in different traditions and it shows up in different regions and in different times. Um, it's hard to see in part because subversion typically wants to stay hidden. Hmm. If it's going to have the time and energy to affect change, it needs to be inconspicuous. And so from a historical standpoint, from a methodological standpoint, it makes it really difficult to try and find instances in the historical record where you can see subversion. Sure. So the Magnificats. Okay. Right. Well, how many times? Right, right. Let's it's limit like, this. Yeah. yeah. So so you find it in, in, in oblique ways. Yeah. Um, the Kaganer, for instance, is just a strange vestige of a community um, that everyone sort of takes for granted now. And even the literature around that, the scholarly literature around that figure is very meager because we don't know where it came from. We don't know where it began, what communities began using it, what their initial intentions were. It's mm-hmm. We just have the vestige of this figure that has shown up throughout generations of tradition. But I, I believe that this is happening in churches right now. Um, an example that I give in the book is a ministry in Boston that I was a part of called Common Cathedral. And it's a... Um, it's a ministry to the unhoused of Boston, and it's a worship service that takes place on the Boston Common every Sunday. It has uh, it has taken place every year for 20 years. I mean, every Sunday for 20 years. Um, it has taken place in blizzards, in the driving rain. Um, there has never not been a worship service for 20 years, and it's a remarkable ministry that was started in part because as much as we like to think of that we are hospitable as housed churches, we do have entry fees. Mm. We believe that part of the prerequisite for participating in our church is like you can't bring all of your stuff. Mm. And you should probably have... So there's s- a checkpoint. Yeah. So there's a, there's a fee that, that, that's implied just at the door. Um, we don't ever notice that it's a fee. Because we would never dream of bringing all of our stuff into church. Mm-hmm. We would always, we tend to shower before we arrive. We tend to have some measure of, um, of hygiene that, uh, that requires, that, that's required of sitting next to someone mm-hmm. that you don't know. Um, all of these things are invisible entry fees that we don't notice as we walk into church. But an unhou- a person unhoused notices them. Mm-hmm. Um, and try as we might to be, um, radically hospitable, which is a sort of buzz phrase that gets used a lot in progressive circles of the church. It's a total lie. It's not true. Mm-hmm. We are hospitable to very particular types of people. And as soon as we get to come to terms with the fact that this is exactly who we are being hospitable to, we'll be in a better place to think about what it means um, to serve our communities and serve our neighbors.
Do you cringe when you see all our welcome signs? Yes. In churches? No, I don't believe it. Yeah. I think it's a lie. I think you, I think they, I think they generally believe it. It's an aspiration. It's an aspiration. And that way it's valuable as an aspiration. But in what ways are we, I think the presence of difference too often doesn't inspire questions about how is this a lie. Hmm. And that's central to ministry. That's the reflexive move of ministry, which is every sermon, every liturgy is an act of heresy in some small part. And if we don't ever come back and think really intentionally about how this is not actually reflective of God's coming reign, how this is not how we ought to operate in the world, um, then we're more likely to preserve that which we have. And like I said at the top, I don't think it's the job of the church to preserve tradition. I think we honor it. I think we care about it. I think we are influenced and inspired by it. I think we have a very complicated and rich relationship with it. But I feel no compulsion to preserve it for its own sake. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Sherry Osting. On our production and research team, we have Garrett Mostowski and Nee Otto Abrahams. Christy Holly works the creative design angle. From the whole team at Princeton Seminary, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.